Did you know you can support your local independent bookstore and me in my efforts to promote books that feature women in aviation by shopping for your next aviatrix read on the Literary Aviatrix website? I built the website to serve as a central source to search and find books featuring women in aviation, and it was important to me to offer you the opportunity to buy from independent sellers. If the book you're interested in is available on bookshop.org, you'll find a link to purchase through my affiliate account on my website, which means I'll receive a small portion of the sale to support the content you love. Blue skies and happy reading. Welcome to the Aviatrix Book Review. I'm Liz Booker. My guest today is an award-winning author, airshow pilot, TED speaker, and the first Latina to earn the rank of full professor in the College of Engineering at the University of Washington in its 100-year history. She's worked with Nobel Prize winners and has taught astronauts to fly. Her innovative research and a stint at NASA designing software for Mars missions led President Obama to call her one of the top scientists and engineers in the country. In addition to her love of math and science, she's passionate about helping others face their own fears and challenges to achieve their goals. She is the author of three books, including her memoir, Flying Free, My Victory Over Fear to Become the First Latina on the U.S. Aerobatic Team, which received the 2021 Nancy Pearl Award for Memoir and the 2021 International Latino Book Award Gold Medal for Most Inspirational Nonfiction in English. And it is the Aviatrix Book Club discussion book for May 2022. You can find her at her website, CeciliaAragonAuthor.com, and on social media at Cecilia Aragon. I'll include a link tree in the show notes. Cecilia Aragon, welcome. Thank you very much, Liz. I'm honored and delighted to be here with you on your amazing podcast. Oh, that's very kind of you to say. This has been a long time in the making. Like, uh, you know, there are only 12 months in the year, and so I have to pick books. And then uh, I've been wanting to interview you for the past year and a half since I started this project because you've been such like a huge supporter of the book club and the writers group. So I'm excited to finally get here. I'm going to make you say your name the proper way because I know I said it in American. How do you say it in Spanish? So my name is Cecilia Aragon, but you can also call me Cecilia Aragon. (laughs) Or doctor. Either one is fine. (laughs) I'll answer to any of them, even hey you. You know, I meant to ask you before we started if you prefer to do a reading or if you just want to give us a summary of the book. How about if I, how about if I read a very short piece? Yes, please. Yeah, of course. All right. In 1985, which is when this story begins, I, Cecilia Rodriguez Aragon, was 25 years old and scared of elevators. 
My graduate school administrator once found me crying in the ninth floor women's restroom after I'd climbed eight flights of stairs, too frightened to jump on the elevator. My fear immobilized me, even in situations that didn't seem to bother anyone else. Like when I climbed a ladder, shook hands with a stranger, or talked on the telephone. It seemed that whenever I had to perform, my brain circuits got jammed and I froze. I was terrified that people would find out the truth, that I was a failure with a capital F. I believed my personality had been stamped into my genes from birth. I-N-T-F. Incompetent, nerd, terrified, failure. But by 1991, just six years later, I was hanging upside down a thousand feet in the air, performing loops and rolls at air shows in front of millions of people in California and across the country. That same year, I beat the national record for fastest time from first solo in an airplane to membership on the United States Unlimited Aerobatic Team. I became the first Latina to win a place on this team and earn the right to represent the U.S. at the Olympics of Aviation, the World Aerobatic Championships. I jumped out of airplanes and taught others how to fly. I learned how to fundraise and earned money to compete at the world level. I worked as a test pilot and contributed to the design of experimental airplanes, crafting curves of metal and fabric that shaped air to lift inanimate objects high above the earth. Flying became my art, my science, and my passion. I used my training in math to optimize split-second performances in the air. In the span of just six years, I taught myself to overcome my self-doubt, shyness, and deep-seated fear of heights to become one of the best aerobatic pilots in the world. Oh, that's such a great launching point for this conversation. I'm so glad you decided to read because your story in, you, you know, you start this reading off with your fears, but in your book, you talk about the foundation for those fears and that lack of confidence. And I'll be honest. I mean, your story is at once infuriating and frustrating and inspiring. And in terms of craft, this is a gorgeously well-crafted memoir, absolutely deserving of the Nancy Pearl Award. And I'm so glad that you received that recognition. I would love for you to share with us why you decided to write this book. Who, who was your audience and what impact do you hope that it makes? Well, to be honest, my first audience was my 12-year-old self. Because I wrote the book because when I was young, I felt that I was such a failure and that I had no hope in life and that I would never achieve anything I ever dreamed of. My teachers were not very supportive, 
As a matter of fact, when I was a young child, I loved to write, but my, I still remember I had a teacher who accused me of plagiarism saying someone like me, by which she meant a daughter of immigrants. Both my parents spoke with thick accents and, um, I grew up in a small Midwestern town where that was very unusual. She said, someone like me couldn't possibly know all those advanced vocabulary words. So from a very early age, I learned that accomplishment was something that would only bring me scorn from the outside world. And that you can, you can believe intellectually that something is not true, but when it gets into your heart from childhood, it's really hard to shake. And so I wrote this book really for anybody who has ever experienced discouragement, you know, in any way, and who wants to have the courage to fight and find their way out of it. So one of the things that I believed when I first started writing this book is that, oh, you know, maybe more women will read it than men. Because so often I've met with women in my teaching career, women come up to me and say, oh, I don't think I'm good enough at math. Math is not my thing. And I really try to encourage them. So that's who I thought my audience was going to be. But I've been surprised to find that many men have come up to me just as well and said, you know, when I was a child, my parents didn't believe in me. My teachers didn't believe in me. And your story really resonated with me. And so that was really kind of exciting to see that the story could reach a wider audience than I expected it would. So now when people ask me, who is the audience for your book? I would say it's really anyone who has ever been told they weren't good enough and who has ever believed that they didn't have what it took to succeed at anything. It, to anyone who has lacked confidence, who has felt imposter syndrome, who has been turned down or diminished by the world around them, from really anyone from teenagers on through people who are 80 years old or older even, people who still, I mean, I've had people come up to me at my talks who are, you know, 70s or 80s, and they've said, your story really inspired me. I'm going to go out and do whatever it was that they always wanted to do. That's so wonderful. You know, I'm not surprised to hear that you've had that reception from men. I think that, you know, there are some, I think we talk about toxic male attitudes. There are just some things in our culture that, that uh, help or cause or force maybe men to hide that stuff a little more or better than women or to manifest it in some really unhealthy behaviors. Um, so that's wonderful to hear that it is inspiring everyone because it should. And then you talk about this like rapid 
um, sort of coming out of your shell, this, this confidence boost that you got from, from flying. First of all, tell us about that first flight. Cause I remember reading about the first flight and going, I can't believe she went, she came, she started here and then ended up here. <laughs> Talk about that. <laughs> so, all right. So let me start with saying what surprises some people. And it's that I never expected to become a pilot. Nobody in my family was a flyer. And as a matter of fact, both my parents were scared of airplanes, especially my mother. Um, my mother remembered uh, growing up in the Philippines. In, and she says she gave me this vivid description, which came from her memoir, um, uh, when she she was in the outhouse, her family's outhouse, which didn't have a roof, and she would hear Japanese airplanes on their way to bomb Manila during World War II, and it would just strike so much fear in her heart. And so when she heard that I was flying, she really was against it. So tell me about that first flight. So I had a friend, a colleague at work before I learned to fly. And at that time, I was leading this very narrow, safe, kind of nerd life. And my friend invited me for a ride in, in a small airplane. And my first thought was, no way. I don't want to die. And if I go up, there'll be a big chance that I'm not going to make it down. <laughs> but then I had one of these moments where... I realized that I'd been saying no to everything in my life just because I was scared. I mean, as I said, I was scared of heights. I was scared of shaking hands. And <laughs> so my life had become so narrow because of fear that my spirit was feeling suffocated. And I knew in that moment that I had to face my fear just this once. So I said, yes. His plane was this tiny four-seater. It looked like a toy. And I, as I walked out to the plane, I thought to myself, I'm going to die for sure. I mean, I truly believed it. I was terrified. <laughs> but then we took off and it was so beautiful. The sun glimmered on the bay like a million gold coins and the waves against the cliffs looked like lace. And my friend even let me handle the controls. But then suddenly he tossed this map at me and asks me for a specific coordinate. And his body language seemed to be saying to me that our lives would depend on whether I answered the question correctly. So I had no idea how to read an aviation map at the time. All I could think about as I stared at this map was, we're going to die if I don't get this answer right. <laughs> and then it hit me. He was asking me for a number. I'm good at math. Oh, yeah. And so I gave him the coordinate. And when I looked at him, he had this grin on his face because he must have seen the joy and exhilaration I felt. And that's when I knew I belonged here. I belonged up in the sky. So I really 
thought after this, that if there's something you're really afraid of, but it also excites you and you want to do it, I mean, it doesn't have to be flying a plane. It could be kite surfing or driving a race car or speaking in public. But if anything, if you're afraid to do it, but you dream of it, I wanted to write a book that would encourage people to get out there and give it a try because you never know what might happen. I mean, this is one of the reasons I work a lot with young girls in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math, because there's no substitute for being a girl comfortable with math, facing a room of people who think little of you and you silence them with your love of numbers. Math is kind of a magic trick that way. You know, that's such a great analogy. I, flying is magic, math is magic. And um, yeah, having those magical yeah. powers is, is amazing. Yeah, please underestimate yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and what's really amazing is how flight, flight really opened so many doors in my life. Because once I had faced that fear of death and triumphed over it, once I'd pointed the airplane at the ground at 250 miles an hour and waited, I knew I could do anything. There, there was nothing in the world that was closed to me. And it, that changed my entire life. So flying is just such an astonishing magic. It's the magic that I dreamed of as a child when I was a little girl reading all these fantasy stories about people with magic who could fly. That is it. It's there. And then you did it. It's so wonderful. I love it. I can't wait to talk more about your interest in, in literature after we get through with this. So I had the best time this weekend. I got to hang out with our mutual friend, Patty Bear, who is the author of another fabulous memoir that just won an award. It's uh, From Plane to Plane. Um, and I had the opportunity to bring two of my worlds together. So Patty invited me. She lives on the beach in Fort Lauderdale. We watched the air show together. And I had another girlfriend from the Coast Guard who was in town. And every year I've been invited by her and her friends uh, to go meet up at their house in Fort Lauderdale and go to the air show. So it was fun to exchange one person's hospitality for another friend's hospitality in that way. <laughs> um, but my girlfriend has the very interesting distinction of being the smallest person I'm pretty sure ever in the Coast Guard to really? get qualified to fly for us. She is 4'11", not quite as tiny as you, I don't think. No, I'm 5'2", so yes. yes. Okay. <laughs> so she is. <laughs> I couldn't even tell. Oh, I just feel like a giant around both her. of you. That's I, all I know. <laughs> yeah, I know how hard. I mean, it's hard for me at 5'2", I can only imagine. Oh, I know. I want to talk about that because so our <laughs> aircraft, the helicopter that we flew together, has fully adjustable everything. The pedals adjust fore and aft. The seat goes up, down, fore and aft, so we can get everything the way that we want it. But now that I'm flying in civilian aircraft, there are all these like antics of stacking cushions and trying to figure out what the best configuration is. And I just loved reading about your very creative approaches to that. So right. what did you what did you do to be able to fly these planes as little as you are? <laughs> so when I first started flying a pits, which is this this uh, aerobatic biplane, a wonderful airplane to fly aerobatics in, 
But unfortunately, it was designed for a range of heights that didn't really go below about 5'7", and it went up to 6'3". Six, six, and uh, the, in the manual, the, the smallest pilot weight that it would take was 140 pounds. And I weigh about a hundred pounds. So, um, and I, and my feet couldn't reach the rudder pedals. So my instructor, when I first started flying said, you know, if you can't get full rudder deflection, it's not safe for you to fly this plane. So maybe you should just give up this idea. And I said, nope, I'm not giving up. <laughs> so I thought and thought about it. And, uh, I went to a local dive shop and I that where you wear weights around a belt. And so I got those weight. I got a set of 40 pounds of lead weight, strapped it to the seat under where I sat. And then I had these special shoes made that I wish I could show you. Um, They had about mm, three inch soles and I wore them. I kind of clopped out to the airplane and uh, (laughs) got a lot of funny looks. But um, by doing that, I was able to fly and I was able to solo the airplane. I really feel very strongly that fitting in a cockpit is a wonderful metaphor for, for anybody fitting into a career or or an environment they want. So for example, when a girl comes to me and says, well, I don't know if I'm good at math or computer science, I say, it's not you, it's the environment. So what I think is really wonderful is what you said about the Coast Guard, making the environment adjustable for everybody. That is what needs to be done in the world today. The environment has to be designed so that everybody can fit into it. It's not very hard. Adjustable rudder pedals are really easy to make. But if the factory doesn't believe that women or small people should fly the airplane, then they're not going to do it. Um, And it is possible to do whatever it takes to fit in there and make it work. But it is far better like I do now, is I call up the factory and I say, you know what? I can't fit in your airplane. Why don't you put in adjustable rudder pedals? And you know what? One of the planes I'm flying now, the uh, light sport aircraft, the Super Petrel made by Skoda Aeronautica, they did that. I went in there and I said, I can't fit in your airplane, but if you adjust the rudder pedals, I can. And hey, guess what? They made a very small change and now I can fit in it. That so, is so great. Yes. Yeah. So hopefully that analogy could encourage other people. So first, I want to know how we go from timid, uh, not sure if we want to fly, we go out for a flight and we're like, oh, definitely want to do this. How to go from that to catapulting at light speed to aerobatics? How did you get there? So I was working as a flight instructor and teaching people to fly. But I still had this little fear of handling the controls deep down inside. And I had a student who started to put me into a spin, which is, uh, you know, an uncontrolled maneuver. And I, I was able to save it because I was properly trained. 
but I didn't feel really comfortable. And so I said, you know, just like when you're driving a car where I grew up, there was snow, right? And uh, you had to learn how to handle the car in a, in, you know, a situation where it was out of control. I realized I needed to take a basic aerobatic course to learn how to handle the aircraft in all attitudes. So I signed up for a 10 hour aerobatics course at um, a local flight school at Oakland, California. And uh, I remember being terrified. I said, there is, I don't know why I'm doing this, but it'll make me a safer pilot. And so I'm going to face my fear and do it so that I can, you know, not only save other people's lives, but face my fear some more. And I still remember the first flight where my instructor took the airplane upside down and I looked up and saw the vineyards and the mountains below me and the sky beneath my feet. And it was so incredible. It was dancing in the air. And in that moment, I knew that that was what I was born to do. It was my art. That the dancing I'd always dreamed of as a child, but had been told, well, you're really not very good at dancing, Cecilia. (laughs) Um, That I knew that I wanted to make an airplane dance the way I always dreamed of dancing. But unfortunately, I still had more obstacles to go through. After one maneuver, I felt sick. (laughs) And I knew we had to land. And it actually took me a while to overcome my nausea. But believe it or not, nausea is easier to overcome than fear. And I developed a method just like I did with the fear of how to go through and overcome that. And um, I ended up winning the second contest I ever entered. And I still have the trophy. It means so much to me. And I just kept on with it. I couldn't really afford it. I was working two jobs to afford, you know, to pay for it. I was scrimping and saving. There is a story I do want to tell um, about this. This is about how I actually won a spot on the U.S. aerobatic team, despite being a terrible underdog. I mean, so I was, this was my first try for the team. And you know that children's story about the little engine that could? (sighs) Well, I had the little airplane that couldn't, (laughs) but I made it anyway. So I was competing against pilots that had far more resources than I. They had these expensive, high-performance airplanes, and I had, well, I had the little airplane that couldn't. It was underpowered, and um, it was all I could afford. When you compete in aerobatics, you're required to do a certain sequence of maneuvers. So it's called an unknown sequence, and they they just hand it to you, and everybody has to fly the same one. And when I saw the sequence that day on the team tryout, I knew that in terms of physics, there was no way my airplane would be capable of these maneuvers. It was just impossible. 
And I remember going back to my hotel room and just despairing. And I thought all this work, all this money, I'm just going to give up now. This sport can't be for me. I have come to the final barrier. It's physically impossible for me to compete with the plane that I have. So how can I defeat physics? But then I heard my dad's voice and the way he used to talk to me when I got stuck on a math problem. He would say, just keep trying. There's got to be a way, be creative. There's got to be a way. And I thought, okay, no, I'm not gonna give up. I'm gonna find that way. So I looked at my problem again. What I needed to do was maximize my score in front of the judges. And I thought, hey, that's a math problem. <laughs> so I came up that evening in the hotel room with a mathematical algorithm that allowed me to devise workarounds for each of my plane's weaknesses and maximize my score. So the next day I went out and I used that algorithm and I flew that plane exactly the way I'd imagined it. And I got not a perfect score because that wasn't physically possible, but the best possible score that I could get in my little airplane. And I made the team. Cecilia, that's such a great story. I mean, that sums up everything. Like all, all of you were genius because I consider you definitely to be a genius. And all of the, all of your the ways that you use that genius to overcome all of the fears that you talked about. I, it's just a wonderful, inspiring story. Thank you. And it all, it's also a testament to really hard work. You know, you didn't just come out of the womb a math whiz. You worked your whole life to be one, and to be able to 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 combine that skill that you fostered and grew over your life um, with this pursuit is just amazing and beautiful. So I'm so excited about that. So I would love if you would tell me what moment in the book that you are most proud of. The moment that I'm most proud of. So, you know, I said that my parents were not flyers and didn't want me to fly. They actually thought it was dangerous. I was going to lose my life. But when I, be, when I won a spot on the team and I competed in the world championships in Hungary, they came out to support me. They became big supporters. And I remember, I think the proudest moment of my life was standing on the podium as I was receiving a medal for my flying and they played the U.S. national anthem and my parents were in the audience and I could see tears in my mom's eyes and my dad was grinning and I knew that they were feeling our daughter is representing our adopted country and they felt so proud of me at that time. And I was so proud of them for coming to the United States with nothing and for 
being courageous in their own way and for being proud of me and for overcoming their own prejudices and fears to stand there and be proud of me. It almost makes me cry now thinking of it. Well, it's making me cry. Apparently I just cry on every single episode now. Like there's always something and you got me. (laughs) Happens every time. One of my favorite phrases in the book And it could almost be like a craft tip when we get to writing, like there's always like this um, repetition that is useful in the craft, but this phrase that you use when your father talked about being proud of you, say it. My father used to say when he was proud of me, my buttons are popping. (laughs) And he would always say it to me whenever I did well in school or, you know, brought home an A on a report card or when I started flying. When I walked down from the podium and hugged him, he said, Cecilia, my buttons are popping. (laughs) All right, we're done. (laughs) I just thought that was so beautiful. And I'm so happy for you that you had that love and support, even though it was kind of a hard road to get to getting them on board with the flying. But I'm glad that they finally got there. Oh my gosh. Well, so you are a busy lady. You are a professor, data scientist. You write books for fun. You're a TED speaker. Like you have all things going on. Are you still flying? Yes, I absolutely am. As a matter of fact, I went flying yesterday. I'm teaching my son to fly. And he recently soloed, and I'm so proud of him. My buttons are popping now. (laughs) (laughs) So great. Oh, my gosh. Well, how do you stay proficient? Like, how do you keep up with it? So I love teaching. I've always loved teaching. And so I teach aerobatics, and I teach people to fly. And um, teaching is a really amazing way to get good at something. Because when you teach, you have to keep thinking about how you do it. You have to keep disassembling the pieces that it took to make you understand it. And everybody learns differently. So you have to design your teaching so that it can reach everyone. I love doing this in my classroom. You know, I have 40 students or maybe more. um, And they're all They all come from different backgrounds. Some of them have computer science backgrounds. Some of them have, have, you know, art backgrounds. And I teach them from wherever they are. I do specialize in teaching people who are afraid of flying how to fly. And I've gotten a lot of people who said, I never would have learned to be a pilot if I hadn't flown with you. And so thank you. And that makes my heart sing. Um, But anyway, so what I was saying about um, teaching in the classroom, sometimes I have students who come to me and say, well, I'm not very good at math. And I say, well, why do you think that? And they say, well, I took this class and I just couldn't understand anything. And I said, that's not you. That's the teacher. I mean, it's my job as a teacher to make sure everybody in the class understands. And if somebody doesn't, That's my fault. So I work very hard to scaffold the learning so that everybody can understand and excel. I think 
every student can excel at whatever topic, whether it's difficult or easy or interesting or maybe not so interesting. It's my job to make it interesting and to set everybody's heart on fire. So, so yeah, <laughs> I love teaching. That's so wonderful. I don't know if I could do it. I really don't. <laughs> I love mentoring, but I don't know that if I could, I, I'm not sure that I could do like the daily. So I think that's, I really admire you. <laughs> well, um, I've been lucky that I've had amazing students. I mean, oh, see, almost all of them have been fantastic. <laughs> that is wonderful. When I, I, so I had the good fortune to catch up with you out in Seattle and west of there last year, and you had just earned your seaplane rating. Are you willing to talk about your aircraft? Yes. So, so one of the best ways to get back to your earlier question, to stay current and to, and to, keep learning is to do something new. So, you know, I'm getting up in years now. I've been flying for 35 years um, and flying a seaplane is something I had never done. I'd always wanted to, but, you know, you start thinking, well, is that something I would be capable of learning something completely new at this stage of my life? And I said, of course I can do it. <laughs> I can do anything. So I went out to uh, Kenmore Air here at, on Lake Washington, and I got my seaplane rating. And yes, at first it was very different from the kind of flying that I had done before, but it was so much fun. Flying a seaplane is just incredibly exciting and landing on the water and really learning a new technique, what it's like to understand the wind and the air and the water. It brings you closer to nature and closer to this gorgeous world that we live in. And it really made me feel a part of the spectacular Pacific Northwest. I was so happy that I took on that new challenge and I love it. <laughs> Absolutely. And I was, you know, I started my seaplane rating 10 years ago and <laughs> there was no examiner. So I wasn't able to finish, but I had, I actually flew with Kenmore when I was there and with your instructor, I didn't even know that until he was like, do you know Cecilia? I was like, yeah, I just saw her. <laughs> so it was so great. Like a small world. And I can't think, I mean, probably the only place more beautiful than the Seattle area to fly in is Alaska, which is on the bucket list. So someday. Maybe but, you and I can fly there together. <laughs> yes, please. I'm going to finish my seaplane raining at Jack Brown's in Florida. I'm scheduled for December. First, I'm going to do my tail dragger. So yeah, I'm working through like, just like you said, like, like learning new skills, exploring aviation. There's just so much to explore. Like it never ends. So you have owned aircraft through this whole evolution. Um, and you talk about it in the book about how like you scrounged, you scrounged and you scraped. 
Um, and, and you own aircraft now. So how is the, how's that experience? Do you recommend it? Yes. I completely recommend owning aircraft to anybody who loves flying. The secret, here's my belief. So, and I do talk about how to afford aircraft in, in the book, but the, the true secret is to find a partnership or as they call it, a co-ownership. You find, um, airplanes, you find people that have similar interests, and then you go in and you buy an aircraft together. And that makes it so much more affordable. It's also more fun. You've also got somebody to share in the care of the airplane. You've got somebody to fly with, somebody who loves the plane as much as you do. So I think I've owned a few dozen aircraft in partnerships or in co-ownerships with other people. And it is something I highly recommend because it's a way that a person of modest income can, can fly. And the other thing is that I've almost always bought used aircraft. New aircraft are, are just beyond the reach of most people, but there's a lot of used aircraft out there. There are people restoring aircraft. There's so many beautiful airplanes that are out there that people love. I mean, in the book, I talked about how I bought an old Cessna 150 for less than the cost of a car at the time. And you know what? Aircraft hold their value. When I sold that airplane, I, I sold it for the same price I bought it for. And I found that in general, um, <laughs> my investment advice, I'm not an investment advisor, so don't listen to me, but this is worth what you paid for it. You should invest in something that you can also enjoy. Yeah, maybe stocks can bring, can bring you know, you the numbers, <laughs> but if you invest in a house, a home, if you invest in an airplane, in my uh, history of owning aircraft, I have never lost money on an airplane. It's you know, sometimes I haven't made any money, but I've always gotten so much joy and so much flying time out of owning that aircraft that it's been worth it. And, and actually today, you know what? I, if I had the money, I would never have sold any airplane I've ever owned because they were all wonderful. They were all beautiful. Oh, it's such a great endorsement. And I told you that when I came back from that trip, hanging out with you and hanging out with our mutual friend, Sherry Surian, like I came home ready to buy a plane and is that's on my list. It's going to happen. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Such, well, move out to company. the Pacific Northwest and buy a share of an airplane with me. <laughs> okay. It's, it's not out of the question, to be honest with you. I'm, Close we'll to have Alaska. To see how go the next couple of years, so we'll see. Oh my gosh! So this is just one of three books, and I remember I was in the car with you or somewhere, and you started talking about this the first book that you wrote. That was this fascinating data analysis of fan fiction. And so here's a thing that we share that isn't reflected necessarily in this book 
but that we both have masters of fine arts in writing for children and young adults, because we both want to reach that audience in our writing at some point. I know that you're working on it and so am I. Um, and so you did this fascinating study and then more recently you did a Ted talk on it, which is a huge deal. And I watched it. I loved it. Talk about that book and about doing the Ted talk. When I was a child, I used to read books, usually fantasy books, the Lord of the Rings, the Narnia books. I mean, so many. And I loved them and they gave me an escape from my life, which was not happy. <laughs> and I, but I found issues sometimes with the books like, um, you know, like the Lord of the Rings, I loved it, but why weren't there any female characters in the party of adventurers? So I thought, you know, I need to fix this. So I, I rewrote the book, but made some of the adventurers, some of the hobbits, uh, girls. <laughs> and um, writing that story was just such a fun experience. I never thought this was real writing. I didn't, you know, I was just kind of making a world that made me comfortable and made me happy. But then as I got older, after I'd become a professor and I was studying data science and doing research in data science with very, very large amounts of, of text, I discovered that there was something called fan fiction where people and on this one site that I, that I ended up studying, mostly young people, the median age was 15 and a half. There were 10 million members of this site and they were mostly ages 13 to 19 and mostly teenage girls. And it brought back all those memories of me as a 12 and 13 year old girl, you know, reading these stories and wanting to make them in an image you know, in a world where I was comfortable, in a world where nobody told me, you know, you're not good enough to do this. And it turns out that is a pretty strong desire in many young people, particularly young girls. And um, so I applied my data science skills to see, can doing this fan fiction writing actually teach people to become better writers. And I did a, a, a data analysis of 60 billion words of text, which I believe is the largest data set of contemporary colloquial English that's been put in written form. Um, and that has been studied and analyzed the way I did it. And I discovered that, yes, indeed, that young people were learning to become better writers. And they were doing it through something that we ended up calling distributed mentoring, where lots of people, lots of other peers, you know, mentoring, you usually think of, oh, an ex one experienced person mentors, you know, a junior or less experienced person. But what we found was that people of all ages we're mentoring each other and not in pairs, but with hundreds or maybe thousands of people coming together to give little bits of mentoring to people. And by doing this, 
these young people were improving their writing. I mean, who would have ever thought this? It was so amazing. And so that's why I wrote the book. The title of the book is Writers in the Secret Garden. Because we felt that, you know, this, this world of fan fiction was really a secret garden where people were growing and changing. And of course, it echoes, you know, Francis Hodgson Burnett's The Secret Garden, which was one of the stories I read and loved as a child because I was a huge reader as a little girl. <laughs> yeah. And then this third book that recently came out, I got, I got to sit in on your book launch for it with your peers who um, helped support the, the publication of it. I know that what the parts that I glean from it is that, you know, you're, you're approaching like, um, you know, data collection and, from a standpoint of there are biases that prevent that create blind spots for people, but talk more about it. So that book is called human centered data science. It just came out two months ago <laughs> and it is all about how data science and artificial intelligence, which are becoming ubiquitous in our lives. And they're, they're really impacting us from, you know, self-driving cars to, who gets sentenced to longer terms in prison to, you know, facial recognition how, and how it impacts society. And I and my co-authors wanted to write about how a data scientist could learn how to become an effective and ethical writer of software that could impact people in ways they might not expect. So it's a very accessible book for anybody who's interested in data science or artificial intelligence, because we do explain algorithms, but in a non-mathematical way. And we talk about if you are learning, if you are going to become a data scientist or a developer of artificial intelligence, here are some of the things you need to think about. And ethics is not the domain only of, you know, experts in ethical thinking. All of us, every one of us can think about how our work can impact the world in a positive way rather than a negative way. And nobody wants their work, or I would say most people don't want their work to have a negative impact on the world. But often we don't understand the unintended consequences of what we design or do. And so this book helps us develop best practices in our own lives for how to make our work the best it can be. And, you know, for data scientists who are looking for careers, the practical side is, you know, how to avoid lawsuits for your company, you know, five years down the road. So we're really excited about the book. And actually, there's been a lot of interest in it from a wide range of, of communities, from managers to, um, to, you know, new students, to people who are just interested in, you know, hey, I, I might be getting a self-driving car someday. What do I need to know about what could be involved in that? You know, I'm glad you mentioned that because reaching back into a former life <laughs> where I studied public administration and I took a very like 
the school that I went to just had this lovely um, statistics course, and it was really statistics for decision makers. They just gave us enough information to be dangerous and to know when people were trying to BS us. And so that was like, when I, when I heard you guys talking about this book, I thought it was an interesting thing for policymakers to consider reading so that they, when they're presented with data, when they are presented with, you know, this population does this and this population does that, they know enough to ask, well, what about, did you ask any questions about this population? Like, are we studying that? Like, so I, I thought it was a, you know, an opportunity also for people in decision-making positions to understand where maybe the holes are in data science um, as well. So, yeah. You are so right. And thank you for bringing that up. I mean, as a matter of fact, I've found I've been often invited to give talks and lectures to policymakers. And one of the things I've found is very often the policymakers don't have a technical background. And so these the salespeople from, you know, these tech companies that are trying to sell, you know, facial recognition software or whatever, um, you know, snow them with, yeah, statistics and, and supposed technical data. And it's really not very fair. It's not right. Um, and so I come in to try to give non-technical people the, the tools to, to ask those questions of the the technological salespeople, what actually is going on here? Yeah, no, I think it's really valuable work and I'm excited about it. And I just love like sort of your breadth, like, like you've just got this breadth of skills and then also how you bring them together. It's just so fascinating to me. I, your big brain. So, um, what are you working on now? Well, you mentioned writing for young people. I'm working on a young adult fantasy novel and, um, I'm hoping to send it to my agent shortly, and I am really excited about it, but it's not yet ready to talk about, so I'm, I'm not going to speak about it in detail, but hopefully I'll be able to do that soon. <laughs> well, I'm excited about it, too. Well, Cecilia, I totally want to um, talk more deeply about writing and your writing journey, but I just wanted to thank you for everything, for making yourself vulnerable in that way. Like, I know that's a really vulnerable place to be to share those stories, but you're right. It's so inspirational. And, um, and then also I want to thank you for your friendship and your support of the Aviatrix book club and the Aviatrix writers group since, since inception. So thanks for everything. Right back at you. Thank you for doing this amazing service to pilots and authors everywhere. It's been so much fun to be a part of, and I'm honored by your friendship. (laughs) It's a lovely community. Well, thanks so much for listening. The Aviatrix Book Club will try something a little different next month. In June, we'll discuss two books that feature the Russian night witches, the novel The Huntress by Kate Quinn and the young adult nonfiction A Thousand Sisters by Elizabeth Wien. This is one of two months this year that we'll do a book pairing. The next one is in October with Becky Condon's She Flies and Bev Weintraub's Wings of Gold. Book club members are invited to come to the discussions having read both or either one of the books, and we'll see how it goes. 
And just a reminder that the Aviatrix Book Club is a club in which we read and discuss books that feature women in aviation, but everyone is welcome. We've had one gentleman um, join a discussion in the last 15 months, and we welcome more. Blue skies and happy reading.